Hey, welcome back. So I wanted to uh, take some time this weekend to to bring something a little extra to, to each of you uh, and to follow up on my post last week uh, of the, the economic collapse scenario. Um, if you haven't listened to it, I think you'll enjoy it. Almost an hour and a half long um, short story. And this weekend, I'm sharing with you uh, sort of a follow up to that. Uh, the an excerpt, the first forty some minutes of my uh, newly released book Zero Sum uh, Civil Strife series, book one. So obviously, like any book, you're going to figure out the plot for yourself. Um, obviously, not everything's going to be given away in just this excerpt, but just to kind of set the scene here, we're talking about the world as we know it, maybe a couple of years in the future, uh, thrown into turmoil essentially because of a uh, an attack on our our the fabric of our society and our financial system. That's a coordinated attack um, carried out by politically motivated uh, individuals um, that are looking to essentially restructure, uh, carry out a revolution, a coup d'etat, if you will, um, on on U.S. Uh, the U.S. political and and financial system, uh, and in hopes that society will follow suit. So that's the scene I'm setting for you. I, I hope you enjoy this, um, and I'll hand this over to the uh, talented uh, Mackenzie Summers, Civil Strife Series Book One, Zero Sum. Chapter 1. Impetus Russell Godfrey wheeled his luxury sedan into the right lane, exited off of Interstate 35, and turned right at the next intersection. Coming into view above the snow-covered maple trees and abandoned gas station was Spencer and Creed Tower. Formerly a multi-purpose office space that was a workplace for the employees of dozens of local companies, Spencer and Creed Tower was now home to the Midwest corporate branch of the third largest bank in the United States, a bank whose total assets rivaled the GDP of Canada and Russia combined. The building was, in reality, a stout and hulking compound that more closely mirrored the shape of a massive shoebox than that of a tower. At only six stories tall, it made up for the unimpressive height with its expansive footprint. Russell's office was on the fifth floor, and he preferred to use the elevator that went directly from the underground parking lot, where his seniority had afforded him a parking space. Russell nodded to the security guard as he approached the gate that barred entry to the parking lot. Russell deliberately avoided rolling down his window to let the frigid air outside. The striped gate swung upwards, allowing Russell to roll his sedan down into the subterranean ramp that lay underneath the behemoth of a building. Knowing he was part of one of the largest financial institutions in human history brought little pride to Russell. He was several generations removed from when G.H. Spencer and Alfred Creed formed their respective banks in the 1920s. Russell was in diapers when the two banks merged in the 1980s. He held little sway within the corporate structure, a fact that did not bother the middle-aged bachelor. He knew he didn't build this bank and he knew that he wanted no part in the charades of managing the thousands of tellers, traders, managers, executives, analysts, and more that Spencer and Creed employed. No, Russell had only one concern this Wednesday morning, and that was making money for the company. Of course, Russell didn't care about the corporation's finances. He did, however, care about making money for his department within Spencer and Creed which naturally and eventually translated to a larger paycheck and more generous bonuses for himself. Russell had been on a rough stretch for the last eight months. Technically, he reminded himself, his department hadn't officially had a losing day in 279 days. Or was it 280? 
Regardless, working as an investment manager at one of the largest banks in the world meant that actually losing money was difficult these days. But it took more than not losing money for Russell to set himself apart. Russell was part of a relatively new program the bank had started a few years back, which involved his department investing in a variety of assets, including stocks, commodities, commercial real estate, currencies, and more. He enjoyed the challenge and flexibility of not being relegated to a single asset class. His phone buzzed as he strolled through the underground ramp. He glanced down to see it was Chris Jenkins, a former colleague and friend from Russell's time at Third Realm Capital, a firm that the two had helped transform from a relatively unknown company into a well-respected and profitable hedge fund. The two men, who had shared an apartment many years ago when they were merely fledgling traders, had since maintained a close friendship despite their geographic separation and the fact they no longer worked at the same firm. "'What's up, Chris?' Russell said into his earpiece. "'Happy Fed Day,' Chris replied. "'Yeah, happy Fed Day to you, too,' Russell grunted. "'Are we looking at actually making some money this time?' "'Oh, come on.' Is that why I haven't gotten a Christmas card from you yet? said Chris. Chris, upper management was pissed we missed that trade. That wasn't my fault. I just give you the leak. I don't tell you how the markets react, Chris said defensively. The consensus beforehand was that a rate cut would be good for emerging market stocks, Russell responded, referring to the amalgamation of various analysts' projection of upcoming market moves based on events such as those that occur on Fed Day. The only consensus that matters is the market. You know that, Russ. Russell was annoyed, but he knew Chris was correct about this. He paused for a moment. Ah, sorry, man, you're right. That one was on me. I'm not trying to give you a hard time. It's just been rough these past few months. Tell me about it. I thought these markets were strange five years ago. But each year they look less and less like markets and more like a never-ending game of charades, Chris replied. Yeah, I know, Russell sighed. I've been working on something big these last few weeks. Might be nothing, but I want to run it by you later today. This could be big, Chris. Really big. Or I'm just seeing something that's not there. Come on, Russ. Why do you have to go and get me all curious about something right before bedtime? I'm not going to be able to sleep now, Chris replied with a hint of sarcasm. It's a little early for a nap, isn't it? asked Russell. Oh, didn't I mention I'm in Singapore? On a trip to meet with some clients out here. Hope you're enjoying that snow up in Minnesota. Russell chuckled at that. Singapore did sound pretty good right now. All right, Chris, so why'd you call me, or did you just want to brag about your vacation? It's about the Fed meeting. What about it? Russell replied. Chris was referring to the meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee, often abbreviated to the FOMC, was the title given to a group of policymakers at the Federal Reserve, the United States Central Bank. The FOMC was responsible for setting key interest rates, creating new currency, buying financial assets with that currency, and a host of other tasks that fall under the umbrella of monetary policy. 
Fed day was the term Chris and Russell used to refer to their regularly scheduled meetings that occurred nine times a year and were followed by a written statement and often a question-and-answer session by the chairman of the Federal Reserve. The policy changes, as well as the statements made by the chairman, were analyzed by the financial world, like the paparazzi analyzed the day-to-day life of a movie star. In many respects, the meetings represented nine of the most important days for markets and the financial community each year. I'm not going to have any special information on it for you this time. Then why'd you call? That's the thing, said Chris. I've been getting leaks about these meetings for, I don't know, three years? Sometimes the full release, sometimes just bullet points. But this time, zilch. Nothing. Sounds like a level playing field, buddy, the way it's supposed to be. What do either of us know about a level playing field? said Chris, chuckling. We'd have to do some actual research if that was the case. Could you imagine? We'd have to actually work, said Russell, continuing the joke. But in all seriousness, said Chris, I'm staying out of this one. No sense in going for a drive at night without headlights, right? Yeah, makes sense. Well, thanks anyways. I'll give you a call later this week to talk about this big trade I'm working on. Still not handing out any hints, said Chris. Russell hesitated. Something fishy in some structured products I'm looking at. Corporate debt? asked Chris. How do you know? replied Russell. You're predictable, Russ. Whenever you have a few bad months, you always start looking for that home run trade, and everyone knows the corporate debt bubble popping would be the home run everyone looks for. But Russell, you know... Yeah, timing is everything, said Russell, finishing Chris's thought. But I still have some charts for you to look over. All right, send them over to me and I'll take a look. Thanks, Chris. Have a good one. The steel gate creaked as it swung shut. On one side was a large field, half trampled, half covered in recently fallen snow, filled with roughly 80 half-ton beasts that lumbered about the mostly empty expanse. David Ruiz walked away from the other side of the gate towards his house, 200 yards away. David looked over his shoulder at the field of beef cattle as he made a mental catalog of the tasks for the rest of the day. The cattle farmer opened the side door to his house, took off his boots, and walked to the bathroom to clean up. His rough, cracked hands needed time to adjust to the warmer temperatures inside. The hot water from the faucet quickened the process, but also made it mildly painful. He dried his hands and walked to his bedroom to change his clothes, at least for the next few hours. David enjoyed the smell of his farm. This time of year, he considered all the smells of the farm to be warm. Warm manure, warm hay, warm cattle, all in stark contrast to the cool air. However, he had not grown up on a farm, nor had his wife, Alice. Though neither found the smells to be repulsive, they also preferred to keep the smell of the field separate from the smell of his house, as futile as a task as it was. It was almost lunch, and as he exited the bathroom, he heard the footfalls of his two daughters as they ran into the kitchen to greet him. "'Hi, Daddy,' said Maya. Maya was the younger of the two. At six years old, David could still easily pick her up, and did so, setting her on the countertop. Harper walked in next. "'Need help with lunch, Dad?' she asked. 
She was eleven years old, and though David still thought of her as a little girl at times, Harper had grown up significantly in the past few years. I don't think so. I found some really big worms out in the field. I thought we could try slurping those up, David said with a smile. Maya reacted with a giggle, and Harper smirked, more amused by her sister's enjoyment of the joke than the joke itself. I'll heat up some leftovers from last night, he said. How's the homework going this morning? I have a question I'm stuck on with science, replied Harper. What's it about? asked David. Well, it's not really a question on the homework. How do cells know what kind of cell that they're supposed to grow into? I know DNA is supposed to tell the cell how to grow, but how do they know what kind? Let me heat this up, David said as he opened the microwave. We'll talk about it in a minute. Harper thrived in a homeschooled setting. Always curious, she often was more challenged by her own questions than the questions in the textbook. So often, her questions extended beyond the scope of the curriculum. This made David proud. He and his wife had decided when they moved to the farm that they would prefer homeschooling. The two could see that public schools had become increasingly inadequate at fulfilling their main purpose, education. Instead, they decided Alice would take on these duties, as education was her major in college prior to switching her focus to marketing. For some time, this plan had worked. David was able to run the farm, but could still help at home if needed, considering the proximity. The farm grew quickly. It had become profitable far sooner than the two had expected. The demand for grass-fed organic beef was robust early on, and continued to rise for the first few years. David even considered buying a neighboring 60 acres to add to his own, which sat vacant at the time. Then, in 2020, the pandemic happened. In their southern Indiana farm, they were largely isolated from the virus itself. For around a year, business actually improved. Fears of meat shortages, as well as a new crowd of individuals looking for a healthy and locally sourced food source, sent demand and prices much higher. For a while, business was great. David eventually did decide to buy the extra land. Then he expanded his herd another 50%, which was also a large expense, considering the prices of calves had risen in tandem with beef prices. However, within months of this expansion, the local market took a turn for the worse. The nearby town of Columbus, Indiana, began seeing industries close up shop or else relocate. This culminated in the bankruptcy and subsequent liquidation of Cummins, the engine manufacturer that had employed a large portion of the surrounding community. David had lived through the relative decline of the Midwest prior to, during, and after the Great Recession. However, the last several years had been far different. It was no longer just the Detroits and Clevelands of the U.S. that were struggling. David found himself struggling to keep his farm operating during an economic period that was only rivaled in intensity and length by the Great Depression. Dad, I asked you something, Maya said sharply. Sorry, honey, what was that? asked David, struggling to take his mind away from the constant replay of what he considered a series of failures on his behalf. When does mom get home from work? Oh, after dinner, I think, he replied as he poured his daughter's two glasses of milk. The hours she worked only exacerbated his negative image of himself. He had failed his family by not adequately providing for them financially. Of course, he knew that wasn't entirely true. 
They owned their house outright, and he never had missed a payment on the farm. Food was on the table, the lights were on, and he had two wonderfully bright daughters. David felt he had a marriage as solid as granite, which was a fact he and Alice both credited to their mutual faith in God, the God of the Bible. In fact, his faith was what countered his own feelings of dissatisfaction at times, with a reminder of how fortunate he was. However, the need for Alice to work outside the house was never part of their plan. She had worked for years before they had moved out to the country, and David certainly understood that watching his two girls was as difficult as any job, especially when they were younger. But Alice loved and cherished those days, even if they left her exhausted and stressed at times. Alice often told David that she doesn't mind working outside the house at a local marketing firm. She had a bachelor's degree in the profession, along with years of experience. They both felt fortunate she was able to land a job in this economy. Still, David often blamed himself for this change of plans. He felt his phone vibrating in his pocket. Hey, babe, how's work? answered David. Oh, you know, it's work, said Alice. I was just checking in on you and the girls. We're fine. Maya's just playing with matches, and I think Harper ran away from home, but I'm sure we'll figure it all out, said David with a grin. Sounds about right, said Alice. So, I'm running to the store after I get off. Do you need anything? Wow, this sounds like something that could have been asked through a text message or maybe an email. Enough with the small talk, David. I don't have time for this. David paused, unsure if she had misread his joke, or perhaps was in a sour mood. I've got to get back to flirting with Tanner from accounting. Good one. Spend all morning thinking that one up, David replied. Um, there's nothing I can think of. Girls, do you need anything from the store? He asked his daughters in the room next door. Candy, said Maya. Chocolate, replied Harper simultaneously. Yeah, they said they want some toothpaste and a bag of carrots, David said in a volume loud enough for his daughters to hear. All right, Alice said, chuckling. I'll be back around six. All right. See you then. See you later. Still unsure of who had bested who in the light banter, neither spouse felt insecure in their current relationship, allowing them to engage in such humor without fear of offending the other. Such phone calls brightened David's day, and often recentered his thoughts on positive aspects of his life, the countless ways in which he had been blessed. David turned to his daughter, and returned to the question she had posed. Let's start by talking about these special cells called stem cells. Technically, Reed Bowman was the third most senior employee at Stronghold Capital when measured based on date of hire. Only the chief financial officer and the director of fixed income investment had been with the firm for a longer period of time. Of course, this was a fact that only Reed was aware of, largely because he was the only employee that cared. He had started with the company over a decade ago as an entry-level IT worker, assisting the IT department and other employees with what he felt were menial tasks, such as implementing software updates, troubleshooting computer problems, and fielding a wide variety of questions from the employees, employees that he viewed as technologically illiterate. However, through the years, Reed had worked his way up through the IT department. Two years prior, he had been promoted to a position with the title of Information Systems Manager. This position came with the responsibility of supervising a majority of the IT department. 
In addition to personnel management, he was also responsible for the massive servers that connected the firm to the outside world and, most importantly, the markets themselves. The fact of the matter was that, though the technology required to sustain firms such as Stronghold Capital had become far more important in recent years, it still played second fiddle to those that actually managed money. Whether it be through trading, managing funds, or even those bright enough to create and manage the algorithmic systems that were crucial to making Stronghold Capital the eighth largest wealth management firm in the United States, the glory, as well as the most generous compensation, went to those that were involved in the markets. Countless other employees, including Reed, were all but forgotten, regardless of their importance to the day-to-day -day operations of the firm. It had occurred to Reed in the past that their high level of importance within the company, as well as correspondingly hefty salaries, might be related to vast sums of money that these money managers had made for the firm and its clients. Who cares how much they make for the company? They'd be nothing without these servers. And the servers would be useless, albeit expensive hunks of hardware, if it weren't for guys like me. Algorithms, often referred to as algos within the trading community, referred to complex trading strategies that made trades within the markets based on intricate mathematical equations. Historically, these algorithms had been created by human minds. In many cases, that continued to be the case, though the creation and modification of the complex trading and hedging strategies increasingly relied on the overwhelming power of artificial intelligence. In many cases, these algorithms were designed to operate with a strategy known as high-frequency trading, a strategy that Stronghold Capital specialized in. High-frequency trading, as the name suggests, involves a huge amount of trades that would far exceed the amount of trades that a human trader would be able to make with any level of success in securing profits. The profits from these frequent and numerous trades were small, and not every trade was profitable. However, like a casino, these algorithms depended on the law of probabilities in order to create a profit. Not every financial firm that attempted to implement algorithmic and high-frequency trading had been profitable. Success was dependent on a combination of a variety of factors. A firm needed a strong strategy for trading, as well as a state-of-the-art technology. Another crucial component of success for such firms was a rapid way in which to communicate with markets. The speed of this communication was a hotly contested competition among high-frequency trading firms. If a trade could be sent a fraction of a second faster by one firm relative to other high-frequency trading firms, that firm could then benefit from the price movement that occurred due to the latecomers, many of which would have already executed similar trades. Though executed at the same time, these trades would be fulfilled after the trade of the firm with the fastest communication, thus bidding up the price after the fastest firm had already established a position, a position that they may choose to immediately sell and in turn make a profit. This process would repeat itself thousands, millions of times in a day and begin once again on the next trading day. Firms would often expend a considerable amount of capital in order to minimize this time of communication with markets. Fiber optic cables and dishes sending microwaves were two of the more common modes of transmission chosen to send trades to the desired market, which itself often consisted of a physical location and a series of computers and servers, not entirely unlike those at the various firms. In fact, 
Some firms had paid millions of dollars for land that either allowed a shorter length of cable or else a more direct path for microwave transmission in order to improve this transmission time by mere microseconds. Stronghold Capital was a firm that had just done that, with their headquarters in Chicago only blocks from the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. The firm had also recognized the importance of superior hardware and had made investments in their technological infrastructure. Of these investments, Reed was most proud of the server room, a room that housed banks of large servers that were responsible for communication between trader desks and the markets. The room also housed expensive, high-performance computers, computers that were purchased with the same intent of maximizing the speed in which trades could be executed and fulfilled. These machines created a barely perceptible whirring as Reed walked through the aisles of the room. In half an hour, Reed would clock out for the last time with Stronghold Capital. To others, it would appear he was taking his lunch break. To Reed, it signified an escape from the firm that he had come to both love and loathe. He had been a loyal employee for all these years, but in the end, $5 million in an untraceable offshore bank account was a deal too hard to pass up, especially considering his already disgruntled attitude. It would be the middle finger he had wanted to give the executives for so long, but far more impactful. Reed had already booked a flight for this afternoon from O'Hare to LAX, and then from LAX to Bangkok. After he had secured access to his bank account, he then could take his time setting up his new life as a wealthy expatriate in Southeast Asia. To the government and citizens of Thailand, or whatever country he decided to settle down in, he would be nothing more than another American that had chosen to leave the States in favor of the relatively low cost of living of a Southeast Asian country. The dollar went a long way in such a country, and it had been common practice for years. Reed Bowman was only 30 minutes away from that life. He ensured that his final checkup on the server room went well. No problems with the liquid cooling system, all the servers were up and running, and the temperature and humidity were within the desired range. This was all data he could check remotely in his office, but it was the nostalgia of the room, the sacred room that he had spent countless hours caring for, that had drawn him to walk up and down the aisles of the server room once more. After completing the walkthrough, he ensured the door to the room was closed and that it locked behind him before he took the elevator down to the IT offices. He had ensured that he was the only IT worker available for this stretch of time. Most were off tending to tedious and borderline unnecessary projects he had deliberately assigned them to complete on this day. Reed sat down at his computer, opened up a few key programs, and put into motion the plan he had been planning for the last three weeks. First, he changed settings for the alerts that would be sent out when problems cropped up that required his department's urgent attention. In this case, he wanted to make sure his email address would be the only address receiving such notifications. Next, he altered the upper bound of the temperature range that the computers and servers would be allowed to continue to operate. He altered it to only one degree Celsius above its current temperature. Next, ensured that not only would an alert go out when this temperature was exceeded, but that the servers and computers within the room would shut down. In normal situations, the shutdown temperature was at a far higher level and put in place to prevent permanent damage to the expensive hardware. In this case, 
the servers would be told to shut down, despite still being at a safe operating temperature. Finally, he shut down the liquid cooling system for the room. Reed rode the elevator down to the ground floor, walked the two blocks to the parking ramp where his car was parked, and got in the car. Reed was proud of this plan that he had conceived. Though he was fairly sure that this sabotage was not legal, it also wasn't overt. No damage to the hardware would occur, and a startup of the servers and computers could be completed in time for the remainder of the IT department to make it home in time for dinner. It would take at least until the next day for the company to realize that it may have been Reed that was responsible for the mayhem, and perhaps another few days for them to discuss any legal action with their team of lawyers. By then, he would be in Thailand and would be difficult, if not impossible, to track down. Reed didn't know who was paying him this $5 million. He didn't know that he was one of a half dozen individuals at firms of comparable sizes that were executing similar plans to temporarily halt trading from their respective companies, all on the same day and at the same time. He did not know that this Wednesday afternoon happened to be the date of a Federal Reserve meeting. He did not know that the FOMC had, only minutes ago, surprised most analysts and traders by raising interest rates, a move that was sure to cause increased volatility in markets. No. Reed only knew and cared of what his life would be less than 48 hours from the execution of his plan. He planned to be sitting in an upscale Bangkok hotel without a care in the world, sipping on some fruity alcoholic drink. However, this future for Reed was not meant to be. Just as he was about to pull his car out of the ramp, his phone buzzed in his pocket. He instinctively reached for it and looked at the screen. It was a bad habit, he knew that, but a habit he had been unable to kick. With his eyes still on the screen, he began to pull out, relying on his peripheral vision for navigation. He didn't see the garbage truck traveling at 35 miles an hour that was barreling at the driver's side of his compact car. Reed died nearly instantly from the impact. His final conscious thought related to the notification he was viewing on his phone as the garbage collector crumpled his spine and skull. It was an email notification that simply read, Alert, 13.04 p.m. Server temperature warning. Shutdown of systems initiated. Chapter 2. Liquidity. I... I just don't get it said Russell. The Fed messed up. They should have gone with the consensus, not try and rock the boat, said Ronald C.S., a junior analyst at Spencer and Creed, as he sat in Russell's office. I get that, but I've never seen the circuit breaker trip that fast. Not in 2020, not in 2008. And what's with this low volume, replied Russell. Within two minutes of the Federal Reserve announcement, the market suddenly plummeted 7%, triggering the circuit breaker, a market mechanism that existed on the New York Stock Exchange that halted trading for a full 15 minutes. Russell was surprised by the decision on interest rates within the announcement from the Federal Reserve, but the response by markets seemed overdone. He was also puzzled by the low volume in the markets. Volume is a measure of the number of shares traded over a given period of time that generally rises dramatically during periods of volatility. When do they open up again? said Russell. 30 seconds, replied the junior analyst. Russell scoured the headlines from the mainstream financial media. So far, not one news outlet had a good explanation. 
He watched as trading resumed and the major stock market indices once again plunged. This time, in exactly 35 seconds, the markets dropped to the next trigger for the circuit breaker, a drop totaling 13%. The largest stock market in the world was once again closed for 15 minutes, while market participants, such as Russell, were left reeling. Russell continued to stare at the chart, as though it would tell him why this was happening and how he should respond. Russell's phone buzzed. It was a number he didn't recognize. Hello? Russell, I need you in my office in two minutes. The phone line went dead. Russell knew the voice, and he now knew why he didn't recognize the number. It was Marcus Avonrell, the head of this regional branch, and an executive that was within the top ten of the most senior individuals was Spencer and Creed. Russell had conversations with Marcus on a semi-regular basis, conversations that generally occurred within Marcus's executive office. The two often saw eye to eye. They were both contrarians at heart. Marcus enjoyed playing devil's advocate to Russell's strategies, strategies that were often unconventional. And yet, he had on several occasions complimented Russell for his ingenuity. He was the man that lobbied corporate headquarters to create what was now Russell's department, and he had handpicked Russell as the head of the department. Despite this history, Russell still saw this man as an enigma. In many ways, Marcus's demeanor and philosophy seemed out of place at a corporate bank. It was an industry in which the range of opinions and philosophies on the market had become increasingly narrow. Marcus was a trailblazer that often made decisions in an unconventional, though deliberate, manner. Russell hustled out of his office and made his way to the top floor. Have a seat, Russell, said Marcus calmly. Sir, Marcus cut him off. It's over, Russell. Excuse me? What's over? Everything. This is it. Pack your things up and head home, replied Marcus, his turn having shifted from calm to stern. You're firing me? How was I? No. I'm not saying you're fired. I'm saying this whole bank is finished. Hell, maybe this is the end for quite a few other big banks, too. Russell finally sat down feeling more confused than angry. Why are you telling me this? Why me of all people? Marcus sighed. I'll start from the beginning. I've been reading some of your work, your research into the structured products in the corporate debt market. You were onto something, something that you were only scratching the surface of, something that is blowing up in our faces. Hang on, you'll have to give me a second here. This is a lot to take in at once. You mean to tell me that what's happening today is related to those structured products? Russell replied. No, not exactly. To be frank, I'm not entirely sure what's happening today. This stays between you and I, but I have a very high up source that has been telling me that this wasn't an accident. That's their assessment, at least. Multiple different firms have been mentioning hacking, technical difficulties, things like that. Sabotage, even. All within the last hour or two, said Marcus. What does this have to do with those structured products, though? Asked Russell, missing the point of the conversation. Forget the structured products. You were right, Russell. It was a bubble. But it was one of a dozen bubbles across the market. We all knew they were there. We all participated in that. What I'm telling you is that what happened today... 
I'm convinced it was no accident. And? And? This is the match that is lighting the powder keg on those proverbial bubbles. You spend enough time in these markets and you get a gut feeling about these things. This was intentional. I know it. Marcus, there's no way we survive this. Why not another bailout? There won't be another bailout. Nationalization, that's what's next. Russell dreaded the term. Bank nationalization was something that, in the past, had only happened in banana republics, communist states, and the like. But in the last few years, large banks had been nationalized throughout the European Union, Japan, Canada, and Australia. The wave of nationalization had culminated in the People's Republic of China's decision to nationalize the entirety of its financial systems eight months prior. This had not yet happened in the U.S., but Russell was hardly surprised that the topic would come up in the next crisis, the next crisis that had apparently decided to arrive on this frigid morning. But I've said enough, Russell. I respect you and your work. I called you up here because I wanted to tell you personally. You've done a lot for this branch, and I had hoped you would take my own position one day. So no, I'm not firing you. I'm just telling you that there's little use in coming back after today. Who knows? Maybe the bank tellers and janitors will keep their jobs, but not you and I. Spare yourself some dignity. Go home, pour yourself a drink, and try to relax. I have a feeling that today is just the first of many dark days to come. Today was the day. Christy Eccles had received a message on her perception messaging app during her second-to-last class of the day. Though she was unaware of the details of what and how the entire operation would be carried out, she had a gut feeling prior to receiving the message that this was the day that it would all begin. The news of what was happening with markets was her first clue. She didn't understand much about the stock market, other than it was another tool that the richest in today's society used to get richer. Regardless, she knew enough to realize that the ongoing crash was a departure from the norm. After that, she started seeing much more activity in the online forums that she was a member of. None of the posts, individually, were a dead giveaway. However, Christy was a bright young woman, and her intuition had proven itself to be correct. She chose to skip her final class of the day. The professor, she told herself, was liable to be more concerned about the markets than one student's attendance. Not only was there no time to spare, but there was also no need to attend the class that would have been her final class period, at least for quite some time. Her training that she had received over the previous several months was clear. She understood that timeliness was crucial to success. The sooner and more efficiently she finished her tasks, the better. Christy walked into her apartment and took off her backpack. She went into a closet in her bedroom and pulled out a different backpack. She changed into a pair of jeans and a dark sweatshirt and put on a pair of nondescript tennis shoes. She gathered a few other items and then sat on her couch as she awaited more specific instructions. Finally, after several minutes of waiting, they arrived. The message consisted of a nearby address as well as a code phrase, 151. She dwelt on this code phrase for a moment. Knowing its exact meaning, she, like every other person involved in the day's operations, knew precisely what such codes signified. They represented orders, instructions. The acts signified by the codes ranged from seemingly benign acts, such as organizing protests, to 
much more serious undertakings, up to and including murder. The orders were not chosen at random. They were decided by leadership on the basis of perceived loyalty, courage, and ability. Christy knew she embodied those qualities, though still found herself grateful that she had not been ordered to take someone's life. The task that she had been assigned, however, still shook her to her very core. She was a young college student. She had never committed an act of violence, never so much as stolen a candy bar from a store. However, she knew the cause was worthy. Pushing aside any doubts, she pulled up the address on her phone and walked out the door. Her heart pounded with both trepidation and excitement. The address she had been given was within walking distance. This turned out to be fortuitous considering the ride-sharing app she had planned to utilize would require her to use her card or mobile payment app, both of which were rumored to be in the midst of a service disruption. After a brisk 15-minute walk, she arrived at the location that had been provided to her. You have got to be kidding me, she murmured to herself under her breath. What stood directly across the street from Christie was an old-fashioned drugstore that looked as if it was pulled straight out of the 1950s. A sign hung over the door that read TJ's Drugstore. Christie had never seen the store, but it reminded her of a simpler time, a more wholesome time. She knew that she had to finish what she had set out to complete, but this store stood in front of her, as if fate were trying its very hardest to change her mind. To prick her conscience, she looked up and down the street. Cleveland was as busy as ever, but she could see that many of the people, whether they were in a car, on a bike, or on foot, appeared more distracted than usual. No doubt, much like Christie's college classmates, they were perplexed by what had happened in the markets today. Suddenly, she heard police sirens blaring. The source of the sound was only blocks away, it took her brain a moment to realize that they were not coming for her. Christie's task was not yet completed, and she was, for the time being, innocent. Still, Christie wondered if that police officer was responding to one of her fellow operatives' actions. She didn't know how many others were based in the Cleveland area, though she estimated it to be at least a dozen, considering the size of the city and surrounding communities. She was stalling, and she knew it. She closed her eyes for a moment, took a deep breath, and began walking across the street. Once she reached the other side, she reached into her backpack and pulled out a bandana that she proceeded to tie behind her neck and pull up to cover the bottom two-thirds of her face. Christy entered through the front door of the store and approached the checkout counter. Behind the counter stood an elderly man that appeared to be in his seventies, if she were to make a guess. He was far too young to be the original owner of the shop, but a child of the owner? Grandchild? She was too nervous to do the mental math. What can I help you with? said the man. Christy hesitated. Just so you know, our card reader has been down this afternoon, so we're only able to accept cash. Christy looked around the store. There were no other customers. Though she was wearing a bandana, it was still not unusual to see some individuals still wearing masks in the years since COVID-19 pandemic. The man appeared to not be concerned with its presence on her face. Hang on a second, she said as she pulled off her backpack and reached into the largest compartment, doing her best to hide her shaking hands. 
Her hand emerged from the bag, holding a handgun that Christy pointed squarely at the man's face. He immediately raised his hands and put them on the back of his head. Listen, I don't want any trouble. I keep two hundred in the till. I can't give you any more than that. The safe has a thirty-minute delay, and there's no way you'll hang around that long. I don't want your money, said Christy, as both her voice and her hand holding the gun shook with fear. She realized for a moment that the man behind the counter was calmer than she was. Okay, fine. Give me a second and I'll find the key for the tobacco shelves, he said, referring to the large display box, fully stocked with various brands of cigarettes, cigars, and electronic cigarettes. That's not what I'm here for. I... I want you to lead me to your back room. Why? said the man with a confused expression. Listen, she said, raising her voice. I don't think you're in a position to ask questions. I said, show me your back room. The man obliged and began walking towards a door behind the counter with a sign that read, Employees Only. Wait, shouted Christy in a stern voice. She kept the gun pointed at him as she grabbed a broom that sat behind the counter. She walked backwards towards the front of the store, not taking her eyes off the man. She placed the broom through the two door handles, securing the front door from being opened from the outside. Okay, let's go, said Christy, as she gestured to the door leading to the back of the store. The man began walking, and Christy followed, keeping the gun pointed at his back the entire time while also maintaining a distance of several feet. The back of the store was small, and much of the space was dominated by a large cooler in one corner and a desk in another. Stand in the corner, hands behind your back, said Christy, gesturing to a corner of the store that was clear of any furniture or merchandise. Christy used her free hand to grab a set of zip-tie wrist restraints from her back pocket. She had practiced applying these several times in the past, but completing the task with a gun in one hand was a difficult task. She knew that, for a moment, the need for two unencumbered hands would leave her vulnerable, because she needed one hand to clasp his wrist together, and the other to pull the restraints tight. She tucked the handgun between her elbow and right hip and leaned in. As soon as she did this, the man attempted to pull his hands apart, while simultaneously stepping backwards. Christy was thrown off balance. She tripped over a box on the floor, falling on her back. The gun clattered on the floor. So I hope each of you enjoyed that uh, 40-some minutes of, of the first book in this series, uh, Zero Sum. If you want to listen to the rest of it, which I hope each of you are thinking just that, hey, there's a link down below in the description uh, and in the comment section, um, if you're on YouTube, uh, to to the book on, on Audible, and, and you can follow up to listen to the, uh, the audio version narrated by uh, Mackenzie Summers, or else you can go ahead and, and click on Amazon for the paperback hardcover and and uh ebook copy of that as well um i hope you enjoyed this certainly more to come in this series um book one which audiobook i mean i think the length is over eight hours um, book two is already um in the works i've already started uh working on it um so so once again thank you to each of you for your support thank you for for tuning in today and god bless